Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have another episode in our podcast founder series, where we invite kick-ass entrepreneurs to chat about their experiences from the front lines of starting a company. We cover everything from newly minted startups still struggling to make it out of their garage, all the way to the elusive unicorns that are either transforming traditional business sectors with innovative ideas or creating entirely new ones through cutting-edge technologies. Either way, the result will be total catastrophic failure and bankruptcy or hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and a valuation worth north of a billion dollars. Listen in to hear the tales of blood, sweat, and tears as these founders try to change the world. As a disclosure reminder, I've invested in most, if not all, of these startups and will look to invest more as they continue their startup journey. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy the next episode in our founder series. What's up, y'all? We got an effervescent show for you today. You've definitely heard or seen this brand before as I drink their water in almost every episode over the past year. Our guest is the founder of Ugly Drinks, a beverage company that makes drinks with no sugar, no sweetener, no calories, and is trying to expose the ugly truth about big beverage. In today's episode, we hear our guest fell in love with the beverage industry so much he started a company to provide people with a healthy drink at an affordable price. What started out with our guests walking around London to sell water one store at a time has now reached over 15,000 stores around the globe. Our guest shares the story of the brand and marketing with the ugly name, why there's such a need for a healthy drink on the market, and what it was like to embrace direct-to-consumer during COVID. As a special offer for listeners of the show, visit UglyDrinks.com and use the code UGLYMEB to get 20% off your order. Again, that's UglyDrinks.com and use the code UGLYMEB for 20% off your order. I promise you'll love these waters. Please enjoy this episode with Ugly Drinks, Hugh Thomas. Hugh, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Where do we find you today? So I, despite the accent, I'm in the US. I live here in New York, in Brooklyn. Been here about four years. And yeah, it's nice to be chatting to you. You were transformed into a hipster. You got a beard already. Imagine drinking a $10 coffee. I love Brooklyn. I miss New York. I can't complain about the coffee prices. I live in LA. So <laughs> when's the last time you've been home uh, to the UK? Actually, because of COVID, not been back in almost two years at this point. So hopefully they lift some of these restrictions in the next month or so and I'll be able to get back and see some family and friends. But 
Uh, I think I've been here in my apartment running ugly for the last what, 18 months at this point, like many people I'm sure listening or watching. So we've been badgering to get you guys on the show. You guys fit into a category for investors of what I kind of can call the Peter Lynch method of picking stocks. And you don't know this, but I'm a quant. So everything I do is computer-based with the exception of product companies I tend to love. And there's only been about a dozen of these. And I'll put you in the same category uh, back in the day of Lyft, Impossible Foods, Hotel Tonight, and now Ugly Drink. So you're in good company. In prep of the show, I have a, what do we have today? I got the orange soda, listeners, and I got a cherry. And we'll talk all about this. Longtime listeners probably have seen me crack these during many a podcast and think I'm just crushing beers for, <laughs> for the last few years because it, you know, the can is striking, but it's actually sparkling water, y'all. All right. Let's hear about your origin story. You started off in the coconut water world or something like that. Give us a little rewind. Yeah. So obviously grew up in the UK. When I was a student at university, I was the vitamin water guy. So you got, you'll remember the brand, the colorful liquids for 50 cents that sold to Coca-Cola. When I was 18, I was the guy with an apartment full of vitamin water drinks. Like I had a, a couch made out of the vitamin water cases that were delivered to my apartment. So that was my first like foray into beverage. And that's when I fell in love with it. I was attending parties, giving out drinks at halftime of you know, college sports events. I was giving out drinks in university libraries when people were revising for and studying for exams. And I just fell in love with the number of touch points. And then when I left university, I went to work in big CPG. So I worked for Heinz Ketchup. I was in the European marketing team there, which is obviously a huge brand. I learned a lot about how big business runs, all of the processes, the way they use data. But obviously, being young and entrepreneurial was frustrated by that. Didn't have a beard at that time either. I was actually very clean shaven and wore a suit to work. I'm now very different to that. Learned a huge amount, but working in a big company, wanted to get rid of some of the process that I felt was stifling me. And now, ironically, I'm trying to introduce most of that process back to our startup. So I uh, left Heinz to join an upstart beverage company called Vitacoco, the coconut water business. And Vitacoco was exploding here in the US and then was launching in Europe in the Middle East. So I was the first marketing hire there. I was in a team of four people in a tiny office in London. We grew that business from less than half a million revenue to 50 million revenue in the four years I was there. We launched in 45 plus markets across the Europe, the Middle East. We launched in South Africa. We launched all across Western Europe, all across the UK. We went as far east as Pakistan and lots of different markets where we took coconut water to. And I was lucky enough to spend time not only in those markets, but also visiting New York's head office here. And also was lucky enough to go to Tokyo and see the brand launch in Japan as well. So I really kind of saw what it meant to be part of a global drinks company. And I fell in love with it. I love beverage. I love the way when you hold a can or a bottle, it says so much about you. And I love the way working in that team felt like being on a sports team. Everybody has a different position. You have to have a balance of EQ and IQ in beverage. Not everyone can manage the books and do the accounting. And not everyone can walk into a store in the Bronx and sell a case of coconut water to a store manager. So you need to have a blend of personalities and a blend of characteristics with the same kind of cultural DNA. And I found that fascinating. And then I guess the last part of the origin story of Ugly is that I began to be really aware of sugar and sweetener in beverage and how big of an issue it is. My mom is a diabetic nurse back in the UK. And she was always taught me, you are what you drink as much as what you eat. And how many of the patients she was seeing who were 
newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes were because of overconsumption of hidden sugars and in particular soda. And I looked into it and I was like, the size of these markets is so big. In the US, it's a $90 billion soda market. In the UK, it's almost a $10 billion soda market. And that's just two countries. I mean, you look at places like Mexico, the capita consumption of soda products is off the scale. And I looked at it and everybody was talking about health being a trend. And you actually realize that obesity and people being overweight percentages have increased since the 70s, like in an insane number. I think in the UK, 6% of people were obese in 1976. And 2016, it's more like 30%. 20% of 12-year-olds in the UK are now obese. And it's just, you look at these things and everybody's talking about investing in healthy food and drink and natural food and drink. And I just felt so many of those things are expensive. So many healthy products are five bucks, 10 bucks, five pounds to buy available in Santa Monica, Manhattan and London. And in reality, people are regular people working hard for their money, choosing products that they can afford. Certainly over the last 12 months, people have really been squeezed on their income. They need to make healthy switches that are affordable and accessible. And they want to buy from brands that speak to them like regular people. And so I became obsessed with this idea of taking on Big Soda with a brand that was healthy, but positioned like a soda and spoke to people like it was your friend and didn't tell you you needed to go and do yoga and Pilates and drink a green juice to be healthy. You can drink sparkling water and drink more water and get rid of 40 grams of sugar from a soda every time you swap a can out. That was kind of the real driving force. And every day when I wake up now, I'm thinking about how we slowly introduce more consumers to water and get people drinking water because it's fun and refreshing versus drinking soda. And so that's what I'm motivated by. That's funny. I mean, if you think back in the US, when I was growing up, used to have this food pyramid where at the bottom was like, you need to get 10 servings a day of pasta and bread and like grains. And hey, as a wheat farmer, I'm okay with that. But as someone who understands a little bit about nutrition, that's uh, probably inverse of what you want it to be. And knowledge compounds over time. We learned some things. I grew up drinking soda. I mean, my God, I remember even being in college and I would put down like six diet cherry vanilla Dr. Peppers a day when I was interning. And people would be like, Meb, you know, the diet's no better for you. I'm like, look, I'm very aware. I just love, I think I love the bubbles and I love that there's a different taste than the water. And of course, sprinkling some caffeine. Anyway, so, okay, you came up with this idea. You're like, look, this space, it's so obvious. I mean, it's one of these things that's just like, look, in the future, you're not going to be drinking these sugary drinks. It's epidemic, certainly here as well as elsewhere. But what gave you sort of the chutzpah, I don't know, inspiration of saying, maybe I can make my own drink? And how'd you start doing it? Were you just in your kitchen starting to experiment? How did it even get uh, started? No, it's crazy looking back. I mean, I was 23 at the time in a small apartment sharing with other people in London, still in a full-time job. had this idea and flavored sparkling water existed in the US, but there was no one doing it in a can in Europe. And obviously, I was always ambitious about going global with this, which eventually brought us here. Yeah, started with the first thing I did, which is a hack I always tell new entrepreneurs was setting up a fake domain name and having an email address that wasn't my Hotmail or Gmail because... I was finding people weren't replying to my uh, Hugh Thomas, whatever embarrassing hotmail address that I'd created when I was 15 or something like that. It's funny you mentioned that because like there's a element now where if you're marketing to a specific demographic, aka older wealthy people, 
you actually want the AOL addresses because it identifies as being somebody who's uh, old and probably has a lot of money. Anyway, <laughs> keep going. I was emailing factories and co-packer investors and I was CEO of whatever holding company we created at the time. And that started to open doors for us. So people felt we were serious that I was the CEO of a company, even though I was sat in my bedroom in London. And just started using Google to understand how to start a company. Like very simply, I had no idea what I was doing. Everything's been joining the dots and self-taught all the way through. Obviously, I had a bit of experience in beverage, but I was young. I thought I knew what I was doing, but figured it out. Started batching up drinks, started experimenting with products, started learning about food science and complexity of co-packing, then realized the minimum order quantities of making products like this, which was like, oh, okay, I don't have that much money to produce that much product, which is my first experience of understanding the needs to raise capital. And ugly is the result of guys in their early 20s learning as we're going. So there's a lot of mistakes we've made along this process, but we've also learned from a lot of our mistakes. And one of the things we always talk about is being stoic. And there's a book by Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle is the Way. And any of those mistakes long-term ultimately turned out to be things that have taken the business in the direction we're in now. So yeah, it's, it's been a wild journey. Started initially, very first production run, did a small family and friends funding round, kind of people my dad played golf with, uncles and aunties, everybody put a small amount of money and we didn't raise much at all. Did a production run and then it was a case of walking around central London, knocking on doors, trying to sell drinks. And that's where it started. And today we're in what, 15,000 stores around the world and have sold online everywhere. But what was the first flavor? Do you remember? So we did a range, we did a lemon lime and we did a tropical flavored grapefruit and pineapple drink in the UK. And we launched that into Selfridges, which is the big department store in central London, which is our very first stock shop. So not a bad place to launch. They have a food hall there. And we literally walked into the office in the building, knocked on the door and dropped samples off to get that listing. There was no magic behind it. It was as much of a hustle as that. And when we first launched in that store, we did demos, we did samplings in store every day. And we actually met our first bigger investors doing that demo. They were walking through the food hall on a lunch break, saw us pitching it, didn't tell us who they were. And then we got an email a couple of weeks later. And now they're our, they've been our lead investor until today. So you never know. There's moments of serendipity and within the business. Did we get lucky or did we create our own luck? I mean, who knows? But that's how it all started, really. So how does one go about... I mean, you, the nice part about you as a founder is you kind of been through it a little bit. You cut your teeth with some vitamin water, hanging out with 50 in the club, a little bit of the cocoa drinks, which used to be my favorite, coconut water. I think that was the best of the lot. Yeah. I still like it. How does one even go about starting to create some of these? Is there like, I assume there's some pretty significant regulatory quality control situations where you're like, yeah, I just raised a friend of family and started selling soda, but it sounds a lot simpler than it probably was. I think with some food and drink brands, you can maybe produce it in your kitchen with some health and safety regularity stuff and make some jars of peanut butter or chutney or jam or whatever you're going to take down to the local farmer's market. When you're talking about cans of beverage. It's a lot more scientific, obviously. And I didn't have a full canning line built in my apartment. So the first step for us was finding someone who had one of those canning lines. A lot of co-packers basically said, no, we don't want to work with you guys, two 23-year-olds, me and my co-founder, Joe, two 23-year-olds knocking on our door. You've never done this before. Fun fact is we now work with all these co-packers. 
So now they've changed their mind four or five years later. But at the time, it was like, who's going to work with us? Who can make this for us? Eventually found small co-packers, convinced them to work with us, ordered the first batch of cans, had to pay up front for half the product, which was painful, like using a lot of that investor's money. And then we had a warehouse full of drinks and looked at each other and said, well, we better sell this then. And it's one of the reasons we started selling online so early was that we we had a pretty good Instagram account early on, just naturally was telling the story through Instagram. And we had people across the UK finding us and realizing they had a zero sugar alternative to sodas that they could order. And so we said, well, let's set up a Shopify site. This is in 2016, 15, 16. So in the last 12 months, everybody's selling D to C. But at the time, I think it was just mattresses and razor blades being sold direct to consumer. But we felt we could bring that to beverage. And we just started building out from there, one store at a time, one customer at a time online. And eventually kind of really built up some momentum to kind of rebrand, introduce more flavors, and then raise capital to expand the business. I was trying to figure out how I came across you guys. And I know I was tweeting about y'all and some of these other products that I like, food and kind of cooking genre. And I think the original way I ended up buying some of your drinks was through Amazon. And then now you can just buy them from your website, which I don't think was always the case. Can you give us a listeners a little example of how you built out? Because it seems strange, I think, for a lot of people to be like, hey, I'm going to buy sparkling water online, but we get it at the office where we'll get like <laughs> eight cases that come into the office. So yeah, you guys are good customers. Yeah. So for me, when I first moved to the US in particular, I'd walk around a grocery store and you'd see people kind of putting cases and cases of sparkling water in the trunks of their car. When I first moved to New York, I realized that if you live in a fifth floor walk up in Manhattan, the idea of carrying 48 cans of seltzer up five stories is not that exciting. So is there a world in which you just set and forget and subscribe for your office or your home, your seltzer delivery? I mean, it's something that everyone in the family drinks. You want to load up the fridge. It's not overly expensive. And you just want people to drink cans and cans a day, right? Like you do in your office. Once it's there, people enjoy it. It's not bad for anyone. And so that's where we really decided to introduce the direct-to-consumer offering. And we've added to it as we go. And now one of the interesting things we do is offer unique flavors just to that community. So if you're signed up to our mailing list or our text message list, you'll get early access to the flavor of the month. And we create a new flavor every single month on our website. Today, we just announced our butterscotch flavor of sparkling water, which has gone live this afternoon. And it will sell out in the next couple of days. We've done cherry cola. We've done marshmallow. We've done a root beer flavor, grape soda, all zero sugar, zero sweeteners. And it's just what it's done for us is create this amazing community of people that come to us directly, get our emails, they reply, we have interactions with them. We actually crowdsource some of these flavors too. So we asked our fans what flavors they wanted to see from us and we've made them. So we're actually listening, we're having a different relationship. And that's very different to the feedback process that if we were to put this product, which we do as well, but in stores, it's very hard to talk one-to-one with someone who's picked up your case and really understand why they did it what they like about it, which flavors they'd like to see from us next. And so direct-to-consumer has been kind of a big core in terms of building our community and getting the word out there, which is how we're having this conversation is finding us online, meeting. I mean, the fact we're on this call, and I started this in my apartment in London kind of five years ago, is bizarre. The internet has made this happen, right? And so we've been leaning on the internet ever since we started the business. Well, I'm not going to lie. The Butterscotch sounds absolutely atrocious, but we'll try it. We'll definitely get I I didn't even know subscription was a choice. We'll definitely get signed up. 
Grape soda. Oh, man, that's sold out. That sounds like something. New grape. I remember drinking new grape as a kid. Marshmallow, root beer. All right, you're going to put my request. You officially get to put my request. The diet. It's not diet, so it'd be cherry, vanilla, Dr. Ugly. I know you got the Dr. Ugly, but the cherry vanilla. That's Meb's request. Yeah, I've just got my pen out and, and written it down here. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll probably be less popular than the butterscotch. That's cool because, though, like, it gives it an element. Like, and how do you guys like? Is this like international flavors? Is there a company where you're just like, look, we want this specific flavor profile, and they're just like, snap their fingers and they're like, we got that in the queue. They're like, dude, we could come up with anything you possibly want. Yeah, there's, we work with lots of different partners to do that. I mean, the idea center is within Ugly and within our community. So we'll ask our fans what they want. And they're never saying tangerine or passion fruit. It's always ideas like you just had, cherry, vanilla, Dr. Ugly. You probably miss that flavor that you had when you were younger, but you know that it's probably not something you can have six cans a day of anymore. But if we made something that tasted pretty close and was healthy, you'd be into it. So when we go to those flavor houses, we're saying we want to take Meb back to being that age when he had six cans a day. So this is the flavor we're going after. This is the memory that when you taste it, taste and memory are so interlinked. We want to take someone back and give them permission to enjoy that thing again. So I'm drinking the fruit punch now. And I, we took them Hawaiian fruit punch flavor and we said, match this as close as we can. And now this is like drinking a zero sugar, zero sweet and a natural fruit punch drink. It tastes just like it and it's delicious. So that's how we do it. They send us back lots of little bottles. Now we're doing it at home, not in the laboratory anymore because of COVID. We do it on Zoom. We all have our bottles laid out. We do proper sampling like we're sommeliers with a spit bucket and things like that and write our notes down and work with them and collaborate. And that's how we've created such amazing products. The fruit punch is interesting. I mean, I remember being a kid, I was going to camp in North Carolina, Camp Seagull, Camp Moorhead, shout out. I don't think Moorhead exists anymore. But every day for lunch and dinner, the kids essentially had Kool-Aid. Like, my God, you'd probably get arrested for giving people that this day and age. But that's the nostalgia, exactly what you're talking about. The fruit punch, sort of orange soda, sun-kissed, takes me back. The one soda that I still allow myself, and long-time listeners know, because I call it my redneck Red Bull, is Diet Mountain Dew. I'll still treat myself anytime I'm on a road trip and podcasting. Diet Mountain Dew gives me <laughs> the caffeine I need. Well, we've just launched an energy water, which is 160 milligrams of caffeine. Looks a little like this. And we have a Mountain Dew flavor called Mountain Ugly. Zero sugar, zero sweetener. So what's the equivalent? Is that when you say uh, how many grams? 160? Is that like a cup of coffee? Is that like five cups of coffee? It's a 16 ounce can. So it's like two cups of coffee, basically, in the can. You'll really feel it. <laughs> I'll try. We definitely have those in the office. And it's good you distinguish it because it's got a different color. So we'll... Uh, I'll try it later when I'm dragging. You must be universally loathed by delivery men everywhere. Now it's offloaded the uh, someone being at the Whole Foods to all of a sudden just showing up on your door. <laughs> now I'm sure there's some delivery drivers that don't like it and others maybe getting bigger biceps by the week. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. They just offload their workout. Yeah, exactly. What's the origin story on the name? I mean, you clearly have done a really good job on the marketing and the branding. It's a very distinct. I've had a lot of people, ask, again, ask me, what are you drinking? Was this it from day one? Was this like a A-B test of 20 different names? How'd you guys come up with it? No, and I think this is the result of uh, two 23-year-olds in a pub in London having a couple of beers, let's be honest. But that's the magic. And 
branding and marketing is science and art and sometimes there's a little bit of inspiration and I'll tell you about that and for us we wanted to create a brand that took on the status quo we knew the big companies would never do truly disruptive marketing they don't want to take that risk um, and we were coming up with this brand around the same time that the phrase fake news and alternative facts was introduced and it felt for me like there's a lot of similarities between kind of that concept and looking at big soda marketing at the olympics or the soccer world cup and sponsoring grassroots soccer like they do in the UK. And I just felt that you can have taglines about making people happy, making people beautiful. But if you're loading them up with 45 grams of sugar, you're not really doing that. And so I wanted to build a brand around telling the truth and being transparent. And we had this idea around telling the ugly truth. And there's a quote from George Orwell in the book 1984, which is, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And that quote for me was like a light bulb where it was like, going into this next decade, into the 2020s, the internet's going to democratize everything. People can find out what's bad for them, find out the ingredients. The big soda companies have marketed down people's throats, spending as much, all their money over the last 100 years telling them that soda makes you happy and soda equals happiness. And I just wanted to tell it as it is. This is flavored sparkling water, no sugar, no sweetener, no false promises, no marketing gimmicks. And that's what it is. And that's what we've been trying to do ever since then. And so... People have really resonated with it. I don't know if you know Seth Godin's purple cow story where you're on a train going past fields and fields of cows and one of the cows is painted purple. And someone asks you after the train journey, what do you remember about the field of cows? You're going to remember the purple cow. So ugly is a purple cow. When you go to a beverage fridge in the US, some of the stores here are so big, you have thousands of cans on the shelf. What are you going to remember? What are you going to take away? We're a small company. So every time our package is on shelf, it has to work for us. It has to capture people's imagination and stimulate someone picking it up, exploring it, maybe trying it for the first time. And so for us being called ugly and with the bright, vivid colors that we have on the packaging, it just opens that up. And then people fall in love with the honesty, the transparency, the fact we don't take ourselves too seriously, and just the sense of fun we have around the brand. The other thing we do is we also use bright colors and cartoon characters. So you won't see my face on the website or my signature on the can telling people to get healthy. We use cartoon characters. We use street art style to really be subversive and communicate things in a really interesting way to consumers that feels approachable. And so kind of those two things together takes that quite hard name of ugly and really softens it to a way that people find charming and fun rather than aggressive and in your face. Rolling Stones coming after you guys for the tongue trademark or what? I mean, if Mick Jagger wants to sue me, he knows where to find me. I'm the biggest fan, so hopefully he'll give us a break. But lots of people have used tongues in marketing over the years, so I don't think we're the first. And it's actually the you of the ugly anyway, so. Well, you've seen a major trend over the past decade of, you saw this with 50. I think this is a perfect example of celebrities, athletes, singer-songwriter, musicians, actors becoming business people. And so in some cases, it's just your ability to market and branding, but in other cases, it's funding. And so half the time on the cap tables now, you see Nas or Kevin Durant or George Clooney or Joe Montana on and on. And I think maybe 20 years ago, it was a signal in the opposite direction where you saw somebody like that in a cap table and you're like, oh God, this is going to be a disaster. Now, I think it's a signal in the opposite direction more often than not that a lot of these investors are extremely savvy. And if you look at dozens and dozens of examples, They've made way more money business and investing than they have as their actual career. So Mick, if you're listening, 
Let's get you on the cap table for ugly drinks. You guys can do a collaboration. I love that. With a dream investor and my mom could meet him. I, I think that would be the best thing I could ever give her. <laughs> Perfect. So you guys had some big news, right? You're starting to roll out in the US through uh, some brick and mortar stores. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So one of the things last year was we when we launched some of these limited edition flavors that we just spoke about, some of them sold so quickly. We had big retailers starting to reach out for some of them. So one of those was CVS, was one of the first retailers we actually launched into 6,500 CVS stores last week here in the US. So you can find us pretty much in every CVS in the country. We have a store locator on our website. If anyone's listening and wants to check it out, you, it will tell you your nearest store stocking ugly. And it's the first stage for us in terms of really taking these products that we've been refining and honing with our community to mainstream retail, which is always the goal because, as you'll have heard, the mission we started with was to really take on soda and give people a healthy alternative. And the best way to do that is to be available and to be available in stores where regular Americans and people earning their hard-earned money shop. And that's why CVS was one of the first to come to us. But now we're beginning to really roll out beyond that. We've launched another 4,000 stores in the next month. And you hopefully will start to see Ugly popping up in a store near you as we expand over the next couple of years with more flavors, more products, more formats. But really now having built our core base of consumers online. We've got the feedback, we refine the packaging, we refine the liquids, we learn, we talk to them. And then the big retailers have come to us in CVS's case and said, we want to put you in a huge chunk of our stores out the gate. And very honored to be in that position where most people probably live, I don't know, within 30 minutes driving of a CVS store. So anyone who wants to give us a go can go and find it. And that feels pretty cool, to be honest, coming from where we've come from. We got one directly across the street from my office. I'll take a picture and, and give you a shout out, see what flavors they got. So what's the composition look like for you guys? I mean, is it, and I'm sure it's changed over time, but as far as direct to consumer, as far as retail, sort of third party, how's that sort of pie look? Is there a preference? I imagine direct to consumer has the highest margins, but not as much reach. What's it look like? Yeah, so obviously the last 12 months has been a bit warped with coronavirus, meaning a lot of people are at home and buying online. So we had a really strong year with our DTC and Amazon businesses. They both, UK and US, both grow over 500% year on year last year. So much faster than we were expecting them to grow. And now we're seeing retail really start to recover. Predominantly, we'll be about 80% of our business will be retail this year. Ecom is very strong for us. We've done a lot of work on that. But the scale of retail, particularly in this country, is so big that the number of accounts, number of cases you can sell through that channel is significant. So we're all about availability. We're truly omni-channel. People discover products in lots of different ways. I'm sure, Meb, yourself, I mean, you probably bought products on Amazon, on D2C and in retail in the last couple of months. And consumers are no different. So for us, our business strategy is consumer-centric. Where are consumers discovering products? Is it when they're watching TV and scrolling on Instagram? Is it when they're on Amazon looking for something? Or is it when they're in the local grocery store. And ultimately, we came to the conclusion that all of those channels are interlinked. As you did, you discovered us on Amazon and then moved to D2C. Some people will discover us on D2C and find us in CVS and vice versa. So we're trying to make sure we're accessible, much like a can of soda, so that at that point of first, whether that's at home or out and about, we're available as an alternative to soda, at a similar price point. So that's kind of what really drives us. You talk about last year. What was that like? I imagine supply chain disruptions. You mentioned you can't go back uh, across the pond. What's the last year uh, been like for you guys? It's been very tough, as it has been for many small businesses across the world. And 
I think at the time there were so many unknowns and it's easy to look back at hindsight now having ridden out the storm and have different perspective on it. But at the time, we didn't really know what was happening, right? And in March last year, there was a almost a wave of news. I think I remember at the time, it was like, this is going to be four weeks, it's going to be six weeks, and then we'll move on. And very quickly, I think I realized as CEO that this was going to be at least a 12-month challenge that's going to affect us across the world. Our team immediately went fully remote. And at that time, you're worrying about people's health, not only our own team, but the health of society as well, and making sure that we're doing the right thing to protect everybody, not only our own employees, but everyone. So immediately you're in emergency mode trying to protect everybody. Then you start worrying about your business. We had big business in food service. We sold a lot of product in offices across the world. And some of those channels are only just beginning to place orders again because the offices have been empty for 18 months. And so we had to react. We very quickly realized direct-to-consumer was going to be big for us, but we didn't want to ram adverts down people's throats whilst they were panicking about a global pandemic. And so we've tried to be sensible, tasteful, protect our team. And we've also had lots of other societal issues come to the fore this year that have been conversations within our team where we're trying to learn and be better. You know, obviously what's kind of gone on with Black Lives Matter over the last 12 months has been a big area for us to make sure we're doing the right things there. Diversity of staff and genders internally continues to be a big thing for us. And so we're always learning, always progressing. With an international team, we had people in different positions in different places the whole time. We had some employees in states in the US where coronavirus was treated very differently to some other cities and big urban areas. So at different stages, we've had people in different positions. And as CEO, I've had to react and learn and understand that a blanket message wasn't necessarily right all the time. And making sure everyone was safe and reacting to their environments and understanding how everybody was has been a real learning curve for me as a leader. But I'm proud of how our team stuck together through everything. And hopefully now touch wood coming out the other side as a society, right, with the rollout of vaccines and things like that. Yeah. The ESG angle, you know, it's interesting when you talk about companies, but also their products. You guys certainly have a major societal benefit to the extent that people start substituting soda for drinks. Do you ever get any pushback about the angle from people there? And like, I would probably be the use case here where you're like, hey, all of a sudden I'm drinking five of these a day as far as aluminum cans. Is that a consideration about environmental impact recycling? I know aluminum tends to be one of the and this reminds me is when I was a kid, my dad used to send me out the garage and we had like a sledgehammer and it was my favorite thing to do. And I would crush all the cans. I mean, his were probably Coors Light or Coors Banquet Beers. We were in Colorado and take to the recycle machine. It was so much fun to put it. And it was like this big giant transformer looking thing. And I would get, I don't know, $2 back or 50 cents back or something. What do you say? Do you ever get those concerns or is it something that's ever mentioned? Yeah, no, I mean, environment's a massive part of one of the reasons we're in aluminium cans in the first place. I mean, there's no single-use plastic in our US supply chain. We made a huge effort to avoid that. Aluminium cans are infinitely recyclable, so you can repurpose a can an infinite number of times. The extraction process out of the earth, it definitely needs to be improved. And I know a lot of the aluminium companies now are looking at kind of carbon-neutral aluminium extraction. But in general, it's very easy to transport. It's very space-effective when it comes to transportation. Aluminium keeps products fresh for, in our case, 18 to 24 months. There's no UV light getting into the product. There's no oxygen getting into the product. So in terms of kind of keeping things fresh for a long period of time and something that's fully recyclable and transportable, 
aluminium's an amazing format, amazing product format. I think the thing that's been dated about aluminium is the liquids inside. And that's actually the biggest issue. And so you'll see aluminium water brands now instead of plastic bottles, which is a huge issue. And so for us, it's a step in the right direction. There's always things to be improved. If we can swap someone drinking a plastic bottle of water or a plastic bottle of soda for an aluminium can and they pop it in recycling, then that's an improvement. Yeah. I certainly was a LaCroix guy before I became an ugly guy, but I've successfully converted about half a dozen coworkers and family members. They come over and usually take a couple to go when they're leaving. And they're great with cocktails, by the way. This is a little secret like angle for you guys that you could start. I was chatting. We just did a podcast with a friend who has a boutique gin distillery in Mississippi. And it's actually made with rice, but as opposed to using one of these extremely sugary tonics, etc., you can come up with all sorts of cool flavors with Ugly. You guys got to start getting them into bars and restaurants too. There's so many usage occasions for seltzer. I mean, if you want a zero calorie cocktail mixer, it's perfect. And yeah, you can mix it with a little bit of fruit juice if you wanted. You can mix it with pretty much anything you want. We've made a bunch of mocktails too if you're not drinking. And a lot of people, when they're out in bars or at barbecues and they don't want to drink for whatever reason, chuck a few cases of Ugly in the cooler and no one knows that you're not drinking a beer. And they're kind of lots of flavors, lots of refreshment instead of drinking a bunch of lagers or even going beer, then a seltzer keeps you straight. So yeah, it's great in all sorts of occasions. We saw a bunch of people drinking it over this July 4th weekend at barbecues and things like that. We had it at our cooler on the beach, our annual brouhaha on the ocean. All right. So you guys are clearly uh, hitting, firing on all cylinders. It's been a great growth story so far. What's the plans now? I imagine this is a very capital intensive business. Are you still maxing out your credit cards? You guys looking to do some more funding? How's that work? Yeah, obviously lots of my personal credit cards have been maxed out over time, but I think we've evolved from that place now. We're actually actively raising Series A funding round right now to really grow this business to the next stage. We're in 15,000 stores globally now. We have trademarks around the world to expand this as we grow. And yeah, you can see last week launching into 6,500 CVS kind of stores is just the beginning for us in terms of the retail rollout, the number of flavors we'll be producing over the next 12 months and learning with consumers more. So it's just about expansion now for us. We have all the systems, the supply chains, the team in place to grow this. And so fueled with the right partners and capital, there's no reason we can't really chip away at that $90 billion soda industry. There's so much space to go after. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, good. Please CC me on your raise so I can squeeze in on the cap table. I promise I will be the smallest entry. But consumer product VCs that are listening, you guys can hit up Hugh on Twitter and elsewhere. You know what, though? Every time I think about you guys, you're not going to know this, i assuming, but some of our older listeners will. There was a movie, I think it was Wildcats, which is an old Goldie Hawn movie from the 80s, but they had a cheerleading scene, and you guys can Google this, and they do a You're Ugly chant. They say, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly. And they're just talking junk to the other team. (laughs) Movie, I remember being pleasantly average, but that chant stuck in my head. So again, there's another co-branding. Might be my new ringtone. Yeah, it's so good. It's definitely on YouTube. All right, so fundraising, what's the horizon look like for you guys? What would that capital be used for? What are other things you guys got caught up your sleeve as you look to the future? Is it simply growth and getting into new channels? Or do you guys have some other ideas you're cooking up in the kitchen? 
Yeah, so we'll be building our team out as we expand. We'll be launching in lots of different regions around the country. We launched in Los Angeles last month. We're launching in Portland this month. So every time we launch in a new market, we want to be hiring a team that can be out there introducing customers and consumers to Ugly. And so every time we do that, we're really supporting with the team to make it work. We need to invest in marketing too. I mean, the brand's in a great place for this list of creative ideas internally that's longer than a CVS receipt. We have so many different concepts and different ideas that people are going to love, whether it's content, marketing ideas, new flavors. But for us, it's really about driving the core business into more retailers and making this as accessible as possible, whether it's the big grocery stores or convenience stores or even new markets. We're going to try and make Ugly as accessible and as ubiquitous as anything we can. And that's kind of really where we're going to be spending the capital alongside building the team to help us to do that. So we'll wind down with a couple more questions. What's been some of the weirdest flavor requests you guys have had? I mean, butterscotch is up there, but is there some where you're like, A, that's so weird, we have to make it, or B, that's so weird, disgusting, we could never, ever make that? We've had peanut butter and jelly, Nashville hot chicken, cheese pizza. (laughs) I did actually suggest we tried to do, but it's uh, not a great experience. Oh my God. The list goes on. I mean, anything you can imagine. I've even tasted a rain flavor, you know that? When water hits hot tarmac in the summer, somebody created that flavor for us at a flavor house. And it was interesting. I'm not sure we'd sell a million cases of it. But yeah, there's so much excitement and flexibility with it. But we've had all sorts of stuff come in. And generally, I am like a big child. So I'm also on the same page of wonder what pizza flavored water tastes like. So there's nothing too crazy for us to actually trust out. You just got to get the right pizza, you know, Hawaiian pizza, maybe, or sausage and mushrooms or fried egg on top. Listeners, hit Hugh up on Twitter with your suggestions. He said he'll send you a free case if they use your suggestion. He said he promises. Yeah, hold me to that. You can hold me to that. What's been the most memorable part of this journey? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be in between. Is there anything that is like seared on your brain as something that you look back and you're just like, that was a big one. I mean, for me, every time I've ever walked on the street in New York or London and seen someone drinking a can or seen someone seen a can in the garbage, in the litter, it blows my mind, especially when you're just somewhere where you don't expect to see it. I generally will stop the person in the street and ask them how they found the brand. And that's always, for me, what blows my mind the most is when you see it in the trash or someone drinking it on the street. And every time I ever see that, I don't think it'll ever get old. And I know that's not some crazy experience. But for me, when someone spent their hard-earned money on a product we created in a bedroom in London, it's like, it's pretty insane. So for me, that's always the thing. Yeah, and hopefully there's more of those to come. I mean, you guys even have potential to have a little ugly gear, hats, shirts. It's coming. I would wear one. Send me a hat when you guys make one. All right, Hugh, this has been uh, super fun. If people want to buy some drinks, if they want to follow along with what y'all are up to, what's the best places to go? So if you go to uglydrinks.com, we've created a special code for listeners. So it's UGLYMEB, all in caps, (laughs) U-P-L-Y-M-E-B. It will give you 20% off if you're in the UK or US on everything. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Ugly Drinks. We're on TikTok as well, Ugly Drinks. Uh, and you can follow me. I'm Ugly Hugh, and I'm Ugly Hugh pretty much everywhere on the internet. So if anybody wants to reach out, you can find me Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Drop me a DM. Love to hear from people. Always try and respond to everything that comes in. So we would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, the team at Hello Ugly Drinks is always willing to help or can point you in the right direction for our business as well. Hugh, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
course. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>